Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, everybody. It's Meb. It's end of summertime here. Football season starting up. We got Jeff. I figured uh, back in town for a little bit, we would do catch up on some of the Q&A episodes. So a lot of the feedback, we got a gazillion questions. Jeff, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Not bad. I just got back from Chicago, the Morningstar ETF conference where I was on a panel with former podcast guest Wes Gray and Gary Antonacci chatting about momentum and uh, just got back home a few days ago. We have not seen you in the office much for a while. Sounds like you've been out for how long has it been now? A little a little road weary. Uh, Chicago was great. Was also giving a talk in Vancouver and then going to Las Vegas next week to give a few talks. I'm actually a little bit frustrated today. You may be able to hear it in my voice. So if I'm a little nasty and and, and short, you'll know why. But I, I did a little TV. I did CNBC today. And listeners, you know, I, I've done this probably well over 100 times on the various networks. And it's about the same as me writing a book. Every time I've done, I'm like, I'm never going to do that again. Because one of the challenges with doing TV is it's such a short news cycle. And so you go on and you get a couple minutes, right? And I get it. And I kind of, the, the frustration is, is a little bit the format, but they did it today. And I'm on with, you know, Santelli and the whole crowd. So it's kind of like a octo box with a bunch of people. And it's CNBC and the market's have been moving the last few weeks. You know, it's the same old questions. They're, they're asking me somehow. They're like, Meb, I know you're more of a long-term investor. We'll put a link in the show notes so you guys can, can follow along. You know, and there's been these major moves over the, the past week. And I already want to stop her there and be like, no, these aren't major moves. 1% move in the market, 2% is not a major move. That is a normal market move. A 4 5 8% move in a day is a normal market move. So I'm already a little frustrated. And then they said, you know, then they start bringing up the, the all-time worst word, which is the Fed. <laughs> and I'm just like already starting to have a meltdown. And I give a very thoughtful answer, basically saying, look, you know, I kind of bring up our digital advisory, which just launched in the last couple of weeks and talk about how, you know, long-term investors 
can put together a great portfolio so they don't have to worry about what's going on in the Fed. So it works in any market environment and inflation, deflation, you know, and then we do our tilts towards value and momentum and trend following so that no matter what, you have a portfolio that's responding to what's going on. And then they, they make this offhanded comment. Did you see it, by the way? I did not. Okay. They make an offhanded comment where, and I, and I, I in general, really like all of the anchors. And so I, I sympathize with their job. There is no one who would be worse at their job than I would. So I can't, I can't really give them too much crap. But they were like, oh, you know, great plug. And, and Bill, who I've been on with a million times, is like, yeah, great commercial. And part of that just just hit me the wrong way. And so I'm sitting there just starting to fume. And there's <laughs> smoke coming out of my ears. And I'm getting ready to be like, all right, listen, you numb nuts. You know, let's talk about commercials. You know, you guys have people on here every day, these mutual fund managers that charge on average, it's 1.25%, 1.52%. There's something like $30 billion in asset allocation mutual funds. So essentially size of the entire robo industry that charge over two percentage points per year. And let's forget about it. I mean, I did another stat that it was ones over one and a half or one percent. It was like 300 billion, right? So these guys come on and I looked up the stat and we talked about this before. 71% of asset allocation mutual funds, the manager has zero dollars invested in the fund. So these people that come on all day long and tout their funds and give people advice and, and talk about, you know, their funds and what, what you should do and how you should listen to the Fed and they charge two percentage points a year and then they don't invest in any of their cooking. And here I am being like, Hey, we have a no fee offering. It's, it's this great balanced offering. I invest all of my money. In these strategies, anyway, I'm I'm obviously a little torqued, but so you you heard me again. I'm I'm refusing to go on TV for indefinite future. So there'll be a lot of Q and A episodes coming up. Well, speaking of Q and A, let's uh, tackle some more today. Thanks to everybody who has written in. We've gotten a great deal of questions, and actually, there's so many that we can't tackle them all right now. So. What I've done is I've tried to pick a few that I feel are most representative of questions that could have answers that are applicable to the the broadest amount of people out there. So if you wrote in with something that's a little bit more specific to you or your own uh, situation, a little bit more narrow in focus, probably we won't be able to get to those. So you know if you want to try to write in next time and just broaden it a bit, it'll probably increase the odds that we're able to tackle it. So why don't we start off here, Meb? First one is a bit of a, a recap on trend. We have a few questions, which I believe you've actually covered before, either in a past episode or in some of your papers. But because we have new listeners trickling in from time to time, it's never a bad thing just to revisit a couple uh, topics. So this one really is, um, if one were to follow a simple moving average as the trend metric, for example, the 100 or 200 day moving average, is the idea to buy or sell on day one of a broken trend? Or should one wait three days following the broken trend or on heavy volume? Or as is more likely, is there a nuanced approach to the trend following idea? So back when we published our first white paper, Quant Approach to Tactical Asset Allocation, it had a very simple rule. It was literally the most simple rule you could come up with on the planet. It was, if the market is above the 10-month simple moving average, you're long the asset, you update it once a month, and that's it. You wait a month, you update it again. If it's if you're above, you're long. If you're below, you're out. The 10-month 10, 10 simple moving average, roughly equivalent to 200-day simple moving average, the most famous trend indicator, most famous indicator probably in all of investing. It's so funny because over the years, people would read this paper. And there's literally one rule, in the one equation in the entire paper. And people would email me. And I've had hundreds, 
if not thousands of emails about this. Like, hey, Meb, I read your paper. So do you implement this? Do you do the 200-day moving average? Do you wait for it to break 1% below? Or do you only update it every day? Or do you update it once a month? You know, how do you go about this? Does it matter? And so, and I say, wait, like, why are you trying to introduce subjectivity into a simple rules-based process? It's almost always people wanting to sort of put their own spin on it, which is fine, but really they want to reintroduce their ability to make a decision into a rules-based methodology. And so this question may very well have been actually literally, how do you define trend? In which case it's, I don't care. Pick your indicator. It could be 200-day moving average, 100-day weighted moving average. It could be 30-day breakout. Uh, Another trend followers on the podcast said three-year all-time highs. It doesn't matter, but then stick with it. And, and don't try to, you know, second guess. I mean, you can't, I can't tell you how many people back in 07, I remember just put out the paper and the first kind of crack in the multi-asset class, big bear market was real estate REITs peaked. And so REITs started to go down. Then I get these emails and be like, well, Meb, is this really a good time to be selling REITs? I know they're below their long-term average, but the yield curve is doing this or the Fed's doing that or whatever, Right. So they're looking for a reason to try to ignore the signal. Same as probably in, in 09, people were looking for a reason. Oh, no, no, we can't buy into this. It's the Great Depression and the Fed, or who, who knows what. So the interesting part about that is kind of in two parts. One is that, you know, pick your indicator. And I don't have a preference wish. I bet they're all similar. You could even use multiple like we talk about with the value composite. You could use a 50-day, a 200-day, a three-year, blend them all for whatever so that you're not all in on one indicator. But second is... The whole point of it, you know, this goes back to a, a, the, the famous turtles experiment, which we'll be talking about in a coming podcast is, you know, the, the guy who started it, they're like, hey, you're, you're making your rules public. Isn't that going to ruin it? And he goes, I could publish my rules in the newspaper and no one would follow it. Because for that reason alone, people always try to reintroduce their own bias and, and decision making into, into the process. Well, in this situation, let's assume that this person wasn't trying to introduce his own bias. What if this is purely from a mathematical perspective? Is there some amount of days or whatever that significantly improves getting you out before a crash? Was it, was it, no, two, we, was so it we, Tudor who got out of the 200-day? We, we showed, yeah, we're talking about the 87 crash, talking yeah. about using the 200-day moving So average. if you had been using something you know, significantly larger, would that have... It would have been long. Okay. Right, but so like, I don't think it matters. I mean, I think you could go from you know 50 on out to 300-day, for example. I think that we showed in our original white paper on the monthly level, it really, doesn't, really didn't matter. A 10-month, the 10-month moving average parameter was not ideal on any measure of return or risk adjusted. So it showed what we call parameter stability. So the problem is if you had something where it's like only the 186 day moving average worked and everything else didn't, that's a problem. But it broadly works across, you know, the whole scale. And the whole point is not again, it's it's that you're going to be avoiding the really big losses, the really big long bear markets and, you know, it's it's not the Ironically, I don't think it's the 1987 style events. It's where, it, where it's really going to help. It's the really long, drawn out bear markets where I think it helps the most, particularly the ones with a Great Depression sort of level depth. All right. So that's an interesting perspective that I think a lot of people potentially miss is what your goal is in using trend following. You know, a lot of people I think would say that the goal is they want to avoid 87, but you're saying no, that's really more of a, a blip on the radar compared to the broader multi-year bear market type of situation. The, most people get wrong about trend following is the vast majority of benefit of trend following 
the vast majority, it is not a return enhancing strategy. So if you think you're magically going to take stock returns from 10% to 20% by timing the market's trend following, I, I'm sorry to you know burst your balloon, but the whole point of trend following on a single market is it traditionally reduces the volatility and reduces the drawdown. Traditionally. And it might not even. I mean, there's, there's some markets that might not. And then the whole key, you put together enough varied markets. When we had Crittenden on, we were talking about they trade over 100 markets around the world that are uncorrelated. Then you come up with an entirely new sort of return stream, which is the massive diversification across many of these markets. And when you reduce the volatility and drawdowns across all of them, it has an additive effect. And so while you may not miss the, the sharp move in coffee or the Japanese yen, you probably will get it in, you know, the pound or mm-hmm. European stocks or cocoa, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. So the, one of the biggest problems is people always want to look at it on, say, the S&P, which has worked wonderfully on, but it may or may not work on any given month or any given year, or even any given decade. But traditionally, it's worked well in, uh, in long bear markets. This actually segues in well to the next question, which is, what are a good mix of trend strategies for sideways or chainsaw markets? Sadly, I mean, trend following in general usually doesn't work for sideways markets. I mean, trend following, you know, again, I talk about it being my desert island strategy, managed futures as one example, massively diversified, long, short across many markets. And the nice thing, again, pairing that with something like a buy and hold globally, I mean, the way that we do it with the Cambria Digital Advisor, the, the Trinity portfolios, we do half in buy and hold and half in trend following. So that's a nice pair. When markets may be going sideways, a buy and hold portfolio is probably great. You know, you're, you're getting income from all of the, the various investments, you're getting dividends and yield and everything else. Trend following, maybe the, the, the biggest risk to a trend following is the, the whipsaw and, you know, going back and forth, getting long as soon as it goes down and then you get out and it goes back up and, you know, back and forth, which we haven't really seen in a lot of markets lately. There's actually been some great trends over the past few years. Now, if you're running a trend following portfolio and you specifically wanted to avoid that, there's a lot of things you could do like, short-term mean reversion type of systems or code in a multi-system approach that, that will do okay or have exits or entries when uh, a trend following approach, you know, the, the trend following phrase, trend is your friend till it bends in the end. So that, that point where you'll never pick the top and bo- bottom of trend following, but when you have something that may be a top or bottom picker, even if, even if that system isn't positive expectancy or return, it may diversify it enough to improve the overall system. How shorter term are we talking here? I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't spend that. I don't care that much about this topic, so I don't spend really any time looking into it. So, you know, there's a gazillion of examples that we could talk about where, I mean, reading some old books on equities, for example, there's a great system. There's a quant system that would buy stocks. They were down 10% on the day, exit end of day. I mean, that's, that's a system that's not going to correlate really to anything else, you know, or, or other types of short-term daily or weekly type of, or extended systems. So, for example, would be, hey, we have, the, we have a market, S&P, and when it gets 30% away from its 200-day moving average, we'll exit or reduce our position or, or go short or something like that. Or when it goes X amount of standard deviations away. And so there's ways you can, you can code into the money management rules that either reduces or expands the positions based on you know, how stretched that market be, may be to reduce the impact of a, of a move that goes against your current position. All right, let's go uh, to the next one here. They're all kind of related, so it's a good sort of topic to be on here. One of the problems of momentum investing is a momentum crash, which comes with a high max drawdown. 
How about combining momentum investing with your simple 10-month trend strategy as a risk management tool? Buying momentum stocks when they're uptrending and selling them even before the rebalancing period in case they're downtrending. It's a reasonable idea in in concept, but we talked about this actually on our panel and in Chicago, where one of the biggest challenges with trend following, and depending on who you ask, AQR did some presentations in the morning where they talked about it survives, uh, sorry, momentum, it survives transaction costs, but other academics say one of the biggest problems with momentum, depending on how you trade it, is certainly transaction costs. And so if you start not only trading a momentum strategy, but then also trading a hedge on top of that strategy or moving in and out of the stocks on top of that, you just got to be careful about transaction costs. So that's just a caveat. So, but, but, so when the traditional academic literature talks about a factor, you have to be careful whether it's value, whether it's momentum, whether it's size premium, so large cap versus small cap. They often talk about it in a long, short context, meaning they go long the high momentum stocks and short the low momentum. They go long cheap value, they short expensive stuff. They go long small caps, short large caps. And so you have all of a sudden double exposure. And so when a lot of people confuse this, so when, when you talk about momentum and the press talks about it, sometimes the academics are talking about a momentum crash. So 08, for example, in, in the momentum stocks, it happens at turning points because let's say when the market's going down, right? And let's say the depths of the bear market and the end of 08, beginning of 09, the good momentum is probably in a lot of the safe stocks. You know, it's probably the, the utilities or stocks that are uh, historically safer, great balance sheets, whatever, right? And a lot of the bad momentum would have been in the junk, you know, the stuff that was just getting crushed in late 08. Well, when it bottoms and you have the market move 10, 20, 30% very quickly, everything reverses. So it's the junk, the stocks that are trading at super low levels that have been decimated 50, 80, 90%, 95% that all of a sudden have 50, 100% moves off the bottom. So theoretically, what you would have been long and short at the bottom is exactly opposite what you want to be long and short as it goes up. Mm -hmm. So I actually did a post on this years ago called um, something along the lines of how to fix market neutral. And meaning, so let's say you have a market neutral strategy applied to momentum. So you're long momentum stocks, you're short, poor momentum stocks. The problem with that is that you're fighting a headwind. So equity markets rise over time. And so there's a, there's a risk premium there for owning them. So the fact that you're market neutral means you're you know running into the wind because you're short just as much as you are long. One of the ideas I said, look, it makes a lot more sense to just reduce your short exposure as the market declines because you don't really want to be market neutral or short as much long when the market's already down 50% or 80% because that's when you really see the face rippers. And so the basic strategy said something along the lines of for every 10% the market went down, you reduced your short exposure so that by the time it was down, whatever, 50%, you were long only or something like that. So that's one way of removing this sort of short constraint if you want to do it in the first place. And so if you, if you talk about crashes from, a, from a, just a single factor perspective, it's usually not as bad if you're long only as when you're uh, long, short, or market neutral. Because you have to be right or wrong twice. So a lot of the hedge funds example, when they get into trouble... It's they get into trouble because they say they may have their worldview. Let's say a long, short stock fund. They have their worldview and they're long these good stocks, they're short these bad stocks. And they get into an environment where they don't realize that it's actually the same bet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what they're long goes down and what they're short goes up and they lose twice. 
And so that's when you get into the big drawdowns and losses. One of your early points on the subject, though, was about the transaction costs of that double exposure. Were you implementing this in IRA? Would you feel more confident in it? No. If you talk to... That's taxes. So that's that's separate. That's taxes you're paying on it. I'm talking just on bid ask and commissions. I got you. But we talked to... Eric Crittenden. And I mean, again, shorting stocks is tough. It's really, really hard to be able to pick stocks on average. I think most hedge funds don't generate a lot of alpha there. And Eric was talking about, they just use the stock indices to reduce exposure. But our, our favorite quote when it comes to risk or reducing exposure is that if you don't, if you want to hedge a risk, just don't take it in the first place. You know, reduce your exposure till you're, till you're comfortable and can sleep at night. Fair enough. All right, let's uh, move on to question here. Uh, this is about managed futures. As you stated in the podcast, Longboard, ASG, and AQR are the three major players in space that don't have multiple layers of fees. I found them to have a roughly 0.8% correlation to each other over the past couple of years. Based on that, I've opted to invest primarily in the lower cost AQR funds. Aside from costs, do you have any thoughts on what might warrant choosing one diversified trend following managed futures fund over another? You know, again, it's it's... Obviously, I can't recommend funds on this podcast, but it's kind of a do your homework. You know, find an offering and understand it on your own. You shouldn't be asking me. You should be going through all the literature, reading the prospectus, reading the presentation, sitting on webinar and say, do I understand the strategy? Could I explain the strategy to someone else? Do I fully comprehend what they're doing? Because if not, what's going to happen is that strategy or fund is going to lose 20% one quarter. And you say, I don't know if they lost it because the strategy is junk or because they're doing something they weren't supposed to be doing, or it was just randomly, you know, the market. And so you got to be comfortable. And this is, you know, this is a big opportunity. We've talked about this on the podcast before. I think there's a great opportunity to write an investment newsletter or boutique focused on the alternative space, um, the publicly available alternatives. Not, so not the private funds, but rather just the mutual funds and ETFs. There's thousands of these out there. Most people don't understand them. There's a there's a million dollar idea for you, podcast listeners. You know, it seems like I've heard you do this a few times, where you turn it back on your listeners, and the idea is in essence that there's so few really true black and white rules that are right in investing. So much of it is you find an, a strategy or something that works with your temperament, but then you have to stick with it. And the real devil in the details is when you sort of forget your own self, you forget your own strategy, and you end up hopping around. And you don't stay consistent. That's when there's a lot of trouble. Is that accurate? Or yeah, I mean, I was reading an interview in a magazine on the plane with John Malkovich, the actor, and it was talking about all these Q and A questions. And somehow it came up that he was an investor in Madoff. And it's it's interesting because there's it's a great example of being invested in something you have no idea what they're doing. Because if you looked at that, I mean, if you ask and the, the, let's get ignore the fifty red flags about it. But one is just like most of those investors, I assume, wouldn't have been able to explain what he does or his investment strategy. So if you can't explain or you don't understand it, just don't, don't invest in it. I mean, managed futures, look, I like it. doesn't mean you need to like it. It doesn't mean any of these investors even need it. Okay. So for example, I was talking to a reporter and they were trying to get me to kind of talk bad about the robo-advisors. And I said, look, I think they're perfectly reasonable investment strategy. You know, it's modern portfolio theory. It's buy and hold it's low cost. It's better than probably 80% of what's out there already. And so, yes, do I think the way that I do it and we do it is is better? Yeah, I do. It fits my personality. Do I think it's bad? No. I, I, and there's a lot of investing. Stri- I mean, the coffee can portfolio, 
what's wrong with that? Nothing. It's not ideal, but it's certainly better. So thinking about a lot of these ideas, it's what are you comfortable with? What can you understand? I mean, my biggest nightmare as a money manager, my number one concern is having a client that has expectations that don't align with mine or having them not understand what we're doing. And here's an example. I was listening to uh, Malbison's interview with Ritholtz on Masters in Business. Listeners, uh, if you have to listen to one other podcast, Barry's is a great <laughs> one. And Malbison was talking about a psychological study. And he said there's two people. One person has 10 very famous songs in their head. So think happy birthday to you, right? And then the other person is listening. So the first person who has the knowledge would tap them out on the table and try to get the person to guess what they were. They then polled both of them afterwards, and they did this obviously with hundreds of people. They polled the person who knew the songs, what percent do you think the other person got right? They said 50%. No way. And then they said, what percent did they actually get right? And it was 3%. (laughs) And the point of it is like there's this burden of knowledge and information. So as investment advisors, if you're a professional investor listening to this, you know, the biggest complaint about investors when they come to sit down with an advisor is one, the advisor talks about themselves. So the advisor sits down and says, we've been in business for 20 years. We manage $4 billion, you know, yada, yada. Who gives a damn, right? The client comes in wanting to be like, all right, how is this about me? And their biggest fear is, is feeling stupid, honestly. I mean, and if you, you listen to enough of these clients that have talked about it or studies about it, is they come in and they're, they're fearful and, and for good reason. I mean, it takes decades to learn a lot of the investing kind of knowledge and expectations. So the biggest nightmare I have is, is talking to someone or having a conversation and always remembering, hey, look, you know, they don't start with this knowledge of the history and what's happened in investing markets. And so you, you always got to start from the standpoint of let's keep it simpler than more complex. And there's nothing that's more complex than managed futures, particularly for investors, because it involves derivatives, it involves some form of leverage, essentially. In some cases, it involves structures in the, in the Caymans, which I'm going to give a speech in in October, by the way. If you happen to be in the Caymans, anyone, I'll be there. I'm doing my best to avoid uh, any mosquitoes. Anyway, so, I mean, look, I love managed futures, but, but I, I'm not going to be the first to give advice. It's, it's find a process that you're comfortable with, whatever it may be. This actually dovetails into a question next about uh, investor expectations, Meb, I read your article related to the Tony Robbins book in which he details out the uh, Dalio all-weather strategy. I'd love to have the peace and uh, peace of mind of the all-season strategy or all-weather strategy, earning a 10% compound annual growth rate on my retirement without fear of major setbacks. But as far as I can tell, it's false hope. Is it? Okay, so a couple things. One, something that's been driving me increasingly batty over the last few months is the difference in, and this question came up in Chicago, the difference in nominal environments based on inflation. So hypothetically, if you have a environment like the 70s, where let's say that there was 8% inflation, all right, a 10% stock return, while it sounds good, means you only made 2% real, okay? 8% of that just has gone to inflation. So you made a 2% real return. Well, an environment like now, which is, let's call it 2% inflation, if you made a 4% return, most people would say that's not that good. It's the exact same thing as the 10% return before, right? Mm-hmm. An example that just is mind-numbing is the traditional 
expected return for a lot of pension funds and endowments, et cetera. They don't change that by inflation environment, which makes no sense. It's all nominal. It's all it's always nominal. It's just eight percent nominal, right? And some have come down a little bit in recent years, just because of you know the I feel like the craziness of it. But it, you know, everyone thinks in nominal returns because it's it's harder to compare apples. To, it's to them apples to oranges over various time periods. So the golden age of hedge funds, you know, certainly in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, much higher nominal in, uh, inflationary environment. And so this go, this has a lot of ripple effects. It has a ripple effect for financial advisor and institution fees. You know, a one or two percent fee on a ten percent return isn't nearly as bad as a one or two percent fee on a two to four percent return. Right. So the nom, like the investment advisor fees don't nominally adjust. So it's challenged. So, so looking back historically, look, five, two, one rule. Equities over time has, has historically done real 5% a year globally. Get a globally diversified portfolio of equities. You're going to do 5% after inflation. Bonds is about a percent and a half. Bills is about half a percent, but I like to round. 521 is, is my rule. Asset allocation portfolios historically four to 6% real. So 4% real. Add on 2% inflation, you're looking at 6%. And that's, to me, a good bogey right now for a good globally diversified portfolio. And like what Arnaud was talking about in the podcast, hey, look, worst case scenario, you set low expectations, you do better. All it means is you save more and you made more than you thought you would, but but start with low expectations in the first place and then go from there. Okay. And in speaking of the Ray Dalio, the all seasons, and we talked about it in the book and, and showed all these different allocations. I mean, he runs... Three versions of his portfolio. All weather is the buy and hold asset allocation. It's a risk parity tilt, but but it's basically a buy and hold allocation. And we showed on a blog post called How to Clone the Largest Hedge Fund in the World that if you just did a basic globally asset allocation portfolio similar to what we talked about in Trinity, you clone it exactly. So what they're doing, the largest hedge fund in the world, you can get for free. Read my book. Second, go to freebook.mebfaber.com, free copy, and you can learn how to clone large hedge fund in the world. Then they have Pure Alpha, which is the multi-strategy hedge fund, correlates to nothing. The first one, all weather was long only. Pure Alpha, multi-strategy hedge fund. That's the one you really want. By the way, it's getting creamed this year. I think it was down 12% last I saw. And then the last is called Optimal Portfolio, which is the combination of the two. And I forget the exact percentage of which how they put them together. I'll have to look it up. But it's basically Trinity portfolio, right? So obviously they're going to be doing a little different. They're not just a momentum and trend shop, but but it's some in buy and hold, some in what they call their pure alpha go anywhere as the best best allocation. I'm going to have to throw my list away because you keep on saying things that point towards uh, questions that aren't in the order I put them in. Let's actually go with this. So we're talking about asset allocation right now in different portfolios. Another question we got was about episode 17, in which uh, your guests, you know, that's the Resolve Group, I believe it was, uh, said, you know, asset allocation completely dominates long-term portfolio outcomes. But then the reader, the listener says, having read your book on global asset allocation, my takeaway was that over time, asset allocation doesn't matter. So have I misunderstood or do you and your guests hold opposing views on the importance of asset allocation? No, I, I think if you have a true diversified asset allocation most of them do the same thing. If you have something where, so if like, if you have something that looks like the global market portfolio and some variation of that, they're mostly going to end up at the same place. If you have something that in my opinion is very undiversified, like a 60, 40 U S stocks, U S bonds, 
those are going to be the outliers for better or worse. So for the past seven years, it's probably been a positive outlier. For in the next seven or the seven before that, it's it was not. So to have a globally diversified portfolio, the exact percentages I don't think matter. So when I say, does it dominate? Yes. I mean, in, in any given year, the permanent portfolio is going to look vastly different than the all seasons, which is going to look vastly different than 60-40. I mean, they could be 20, 30 percentage points different from each other. But over time, they'll look pretty similar. And the last thing you want is, in my mind, the, the huge outlier that's going to get you something that's you know way worse on one end or way way you know better because then you're just rolling the dice. Okay. Um, I have one, and we, we should wind this down because I'm trying to keep these around 30 minutes. Do you have anything else real quick? If you got gonna, something, go for it. I got a, I got a handwritten card in the mail, which we occasionally get with sometimes they have some beef jerky or a bottle of wine or something. But I got a handwritten card. I'm, I'm just going to read part of it because I, I think it's a question I get a lot. And so I wanted to I'll keep the author anonymous. But it says, hey, dear Meb, thanks for the podcast. My dad loves it after I recommended it to him. You were actually his first podcast. Congrats. Uh, also, congrats on the Cambria Digital Advisor launch. Best luck. As a college senior, I have two questions about working after college. What qualities, skills, and abilities do you look for at Cambria? What unique skills could a college graduate bring to their first-time employer? You know, my, my goal is to maximize my next year in college before I graduate. And we, we did an old post on the blog basically called, I mean, this is five years ago, called something like how to get a hedge fund job. It reminded me of an old article or book or something that Jim Cramer wrote. I give, I give Jim a lot of crap on the podcast, but um, he's, he's got a lot of wonderful qualities and is certainly one of the hardest working men in, in, in our business. Um, but he had a great concept where he was like, look, when I was working my hedge fund, you, know, you show up with a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts at whatever it was, 5 a.m., so be the first person there. And just be like, look, how, how can I be a value? How can I help? And he's like, and then show up the next day. And basically, you know, be tenacious. And, and the whole key to me has always been, how can you be a value? And I, half of our employers from Cambria, employees, have reached out at some point and demonstrated some sort of value before working here. You know, the, the example I used to give on the blog is I was like, look, if I had an interview, and meanwhile, this ignores the fact that you probably, no matter what, need a great base of knowledge. You need a, a de- you know, obviously a average amount of intelligence, if not more, that certainly helps. You know, the, the plumbing is if you, the more, the better, of course, and then obviously have a passion for whatever industry it may be, but be well-read. You know, the, the, the advice from one of Buffett's lieutenants that I tweeted out the other day was, you know, the college person asked him for advice and he said, read, read 500 pages a day. That's a little bit much. You wouldn't have much fun in college and, and probably not have many friends um, and certainly miss all the football games. But, but I think it's, it's in general a good comment about be well-read about a variety of topics, but particularly in industry. Anyway, one of my favorite examples was, let's say you're going to interview at a hedge fund or a job. And this was a creative one that we used to talk about. I said, why wouldn't you look up on, and, and you know the people you're going to interview with. So let's say there's a group of five people or three or whatever. I would go look up their names on unclaimed.org, which is our, our favorite example around tax time we bring up on, on the podcast where it's, uh, it lists everyone's unclaimed assets from when they moved or forgot about something or unclaimed dividend checks, whatever. And you look up the three to five people you're interviewing with. 
And there's a good chance that the government owes them some money. There's a, actually a great chance. So you can go into your first interview and chat with three people. And then by the end of it, say, look, by the way, did you know that the government owes you $5,500 in IBM <laughs> dividends? You can make my first month totally transaction neutral by the fact that you know I did this value-added exercise to, to get my foot in the door. Anyway, just think about something that's value-add, whether it's working as a free intern or doing something that is, is, would, would help that person or help that company. Rather, so many people go into interviews and it's all there. They think it's about them. You know, they think about, hey, how can I get hired? What what can I do so so that you know you're going to be how much you're going to be paying me and, and my benefits? And really, it's like you got to understand it from the perspective of the person hiring. And one of the things I did very poorly, I remember when I was first coming out of college, is remember I was a biotech guy in a world of finances. You also got to think about you know the qualities of the actual role rather than necessarily just who you are as a person because necessarily the two don't match so you want to speak to the job or the the uh, listing you're looking for i mean that's an interesting point one thing is if you're not a good match then there's the potential that you're going to need a lot more hand holding you might be requesting a lot more face time with your direct superior and that's going to end up actually being far more reliability to your boss and if your job and your perspective is truly to try to make your employer's life easier, that's really what you're there for, then if you're coming in thinking, hey, pour into me, give me education, give me your time, that's really going to be the antithesis of why he needs somebody in the first place. So Agreed. Yeah, be careful totally with what your needs are. All right. Anything else, Jeff? I'm good. Why don't you tell everybody again about Vegas when you're going to be there in yeah, case they're Yeah, I will around. be there. Assuming this podcast gets uploaded on Wednesday, I will be in Vegas the following week, Stansbury Conference. Then I got a handful, about half a dozen other speeches in Orange County, San Diego, Grand Cayman. I'm in New York for an entire week in November. We'll post the schedule to the show notes, uh, but certainly would love to say hi uh, to anyone if you're in any of these places and certainly in Las Vegas next week. Thanks for taking the time, everybody. Send us some more questions to feedback Q&A mailbag, feedback at com. You can always find the show notes, more episodes, mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Also send in some uh, some guest ideas. If anybody, anybody you particularly want to see on the uh, on the program, fire over their, uh, their name. Remember, you can always subscribe to the show on iTunes as well as many other podcast players on the blog. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>